I, uh... There was a young man from Azizus whose uh, ears were of two different sizes. What are you trying to do there? Fade it out? Whose ears were of two different sizes. But uh, I can't say the rest. But doggone, I wish I could really say the great stuff that I have boiling down inside of me. You know, if only radio would grow up and you could really say the great stuff, you know, all the fantastic truths. uh, Gee whiz, uh, how great it would be. Think of the great things we could say and uh, <laughs> bring it up large there. We'd like to salute Yosef Kagan, the 36-year-old Istanbul factory worker. He said, and we quote here, his wife has been talking and nagging about everything you can think of ever since we got married three years ago. Oh, man, does she talk. She would nag if I was early, if I was late, or if I took her out, or if I didn't take her out. I was about to flip my cork and go nuts. Finally, I decided to steal something of little value so I might serve a short jail term. And the meanwhile, recuperate then, regain my peace of mind. The judge gave him ten days. And that we'd like to salute that man there. Out there. I mean, sometimes you're driven to the wall. I mean, uh, to the veritable wall. I don't know how to quite approach this, but uh, we've been driven to the wall several times. Uh, we have a note here. It says, uh, I need that book on the seven sins. Quick, I'm missing out. Well, uh, that is true that a lot of you, I'm sure, uh, approach your sin in uh, haphazard, uh, ill-informed manners. You know, it's, it's too bad there's so many sex books. I mean, you know how to do it on the market, but there's not many other books out about the other seven sins or the other six sins, like gluttony. Uh, I think a very good book on sloth. I mean, because uh, sloth is not the same as sloppiness, friends. You just don't sit around with your shoes off. That's not enough. Uh, anger. Did you know that anger is one of the seven sins? Oh, yes. And uh, one of my favorite of all, of course, is greed. I I, uh, I became interested in greed as a sin when uh, I was in the seventh grade. And we had this teacher, Miss Robinette, and she assigned this book called Silas Marner. And uh, you remember that old coot? I remember sitting there reading that thing, and that old guy had this dough, and he kept throwing it up in the air and running it through his hair there. You know, we were supposed to hate him. And say how what a bad time he had, but I kind of thought he had a groovy time, you know. And uh, 
Well, I kind of identify with them. And I, I've always thought of greed as one of the more uh, exciting sins. And uh, for those of you who haven't written for your booklet, I'd say you'd better get on a stick because it's, uh, you know, like uh, that old lady in the subway says, it's earlier than you think, friend. And uh, you could very well be missing out on some of these great fantastic sins. Now, there are seven of them, seven of them. You count them. And they come to you on a long play record, which is easy to play on any record player. And that we're thinking of putting them on television. You know, get the Eddie Albert to sit there and look uh, at his friends. Uh, my wife, Millie, and I and the kids often sit here at home and talk about the seven sins. And I play this record on the LP, and it brings back some old trips that I took. <laughs> You've seen those fantastic commercials, haven't you? You know, nothing like a little bit of Swan Lake to bring the sinner out in you, friends. But uh, would you please, speaking of sin, if you will, uh, one of the worst sins, of course, is uh, if you get bring it in. Just this Jews harp playing when you're not asked to play the Jews harp. Bring it in now. Here comes. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Sin should be taken in moderation. If you get yourself sated with a sin, it ain't no sin anymore. It's a drag. Look at Portnoy's complaint. I mean, he, you don't tell me he likes sex, for crying out loud. Anybody that writes a kvetch book like that don't like it. That's uh, obviously. Uh, speaking of sex, we'd like to salute the little thing that happened out at UCLA. I, you know, I, ever since I was a kid, I always had this terrible desire to go to a... Uh, go to a California college, you know. That's where all those uh, Betty Grable movies were made. Those fantastic colleges, you know, where Jack Oakey went. And uh, Tom Drake, you remember he was always playing football? Don't you know who Jack Oakey was? Oh, he's great. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still a fantastic Jack Oakey fan because I think he's one of the great, uh, why, one of the great camp creations of all time. And Jack Oakey was the oldest, absolutely the oldest, fattest freshman that ever attended uh, any one of those schools. They all had names like Center College and uh, Center Vale U and places like that. And, and there was a lot of dancing on top of the uh, library tables. Uh, this was a, a forerunner of things to come, which uh, we know now is a very common proposition. Now, there's not much reading in those libraries. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of chair thrown and stuff like that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I was uh, always, as a kid, you know, I was always uh, wanting to go to one of these uh, these great schools out on the West Coast. I don't know, they just sounded like, uh, did, did they sound that way to you? They sounded very idyllic, you know, UCLA and places great, you know, like San Jose State. That's a, boy, what an exciting name. That's not like the Indianapolis School of Metaphysical Pyrotechnics which is the kind of schools that, you know, we had around. At the, we had all kinds of holy roller schools, too. You'd go past those schools at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You could hear them whooping and hollering and hollering, amen. And, uh, yeah, big excitement, some of those schools. But uh, here's what happened at UCLA, which only goes to prove that I wasn't so far wrong. A battalion of ROTC cadets needed no order to snap into an eyes right formation Monday while practicing marching on an athletic field at UCLA. A pretty girl, described as a hippie type, greeted each passing company of men by standing and opening her coat. She had nothing on under the coat. Nothing, not a stitch. Witnesses said military discipline went right out the window, Dad. They fell out of step. <laughs> Someone said, like Gomer Pyle. Well, I don't know. Who's this Gomer Pyle? Huh? 
I'm not up with the current slob art. But as the last group of men marched by, the young woman left the field. The matter came to the attention of the uh, fuzz when the ROTC officer called the uh, station and asked something to be done to prevent disruption of his marching drills in the future. I just say this, man, you're missing the point. If you could hire that chick to come out there, you'd have a lot more guys show up for drill. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I mean, drill used to be such a drag. I, I know. I mean, I, I did a lot of drilling. I, you know, I was particularly good at oblique harch. That's one of my specialties. I, I had to measure that 45 degree angle. Oblique harch. And I remember the uh, first time that this guy said this to me. I'm, you know, you're very innocent. You, your life, you start out innocent. Uh, you learn quick. And uh, I don't know whether it's innocent or dumb. I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's both. Anyway, I'm out there, and a bunch of us guys are out there drilling, got this new suit on. And this guy wearing these green sunglasses, he's going, up, yup, up, up. Then all of a sudden he hollers, oblique, harch. I said, excuse me, uh, Corporal, it's oblique. Well, uh, I learned that uh, there are several ways to view that. Uh, mine wasn't necessarily the only way. I mean, that's very interesting. <laughs> I was always doing stuff like that, you know, but I learned quickly. I remember the first time I did that was when I was in school. Had this guy named Mr. Melton. And, uh, yeah, you're listening to, a, well, there's a gutter phrase I don't like to use. It describes me. It's a two-word phrase. The first word is smart. The last word is a three-letter word. Often refers to a short, fat animal with long ears. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I was one of those right from the very crack, right from the beginning. I remember I'm in seventh grade, and... We had this geography teacher named Mr. Melton. He also played the flute. And I don't know whether that went together, but uh, he did anyway. And he, he played the flute, and uh, he also directed the band they had in eighth grade there. I played the tuba. Well, yeah, well, it was, actually it was the E-flat tuba. It was more like an upright baritone, but I played this tuba scene. And uh, Mr. Melton was a very sensitive guy. He was six feet nine or something. And made it weight about 70 pounds, and he's up there by the blackboard, see, and uh, because at that time, I, I listened to the commercials a great deal on radio. Just like kids today listen to commercials, they know. That, wh what is a teenage expert? Well, he's a kid that's listening to all the Pontiac commercials. He knows. And uh, that's right. A, a, a teenage expert is somebody who knows all the commercials by heart. All right? Okay. Uh, there isn't a kid out there who couldn't tell you... Uh, uh, who can tell you... For, for example, if I took a typical TV commercial phrase and I were to say... Uh, we got a good thing. Kid knows right away what I'm talking about. Me and my, we got a real good thing. He knows immediately. If the old man's sitting there with his teeth hanging out, he doesn't know. The kid knows right off the bat. Kid can tell you what's got foaming action. That's right. Kid knows where you can buy a lot, where you can enjoy life. He knows this. Absolutely. Now, that's a teenage expert. Well, I was a teenage expert, see, and I'm sitting there in the back of a the row there, and, and poor old Mr. Melton said, and I quote, the, uh, the several types of food needed by the body include the uh, carbohydrates and the proteins. I waved my hand. I said, excuse me, Mr. Melton. He says, yes, which is, you know, I didn't ordinarily say anything in class except to nudge people. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not trying to be holding coffee. This is what I did. I said to him, Excuse me, Mr. Melton. It is not protein. It is protein. Protein. Now, most people are confused by that because they don't, they've never looked to see how the word is spelled. 
It's not P-R-O-T-I-E-N. It's P-R-O-T-E-I-N. Or protein, not protein. Okay, you dumb slobs. Anyway, I said that. And Melton stopped in the middle of the sentence, and his face was red. And he said, what was that? I said, it's protein, Mr. Melton. Protein. P-R-O-T-E-I-N. Protein. As in, uh, tasty yeast is dandy for your appetite. Tasty yeast is handy. Eat it day or night. It contains protein, carbohydrates, and other valuable foodstuffs. He says, who said that? I said, well, everybody knows that. It's protein. There was a pregnant pause. He said, will you tell me who said that? And I said, well, uh, well, uh, I know who said it. That doesn't make any difference. It's protein. He said, well, who said it? I said, Pierre Andre. He said, who? I said, Pierre Andre. He's the announcer. He's a famous announcer. He's on the uh, Little Orphan Annie show. And he also, uh, he also announces, uh, uh, Smiling Jack. He says, Smiling who? Well, see, already I was a teenage expert, well ahead of my field. I, I was uh, deeply immersed in Marshall McLuhan's world long before Marshall McLuhan made it big on the Ed Sullivan Show. Long before that. Now, uh, for those of you who are interested in the word, I would suggest you look it up. It's protein. 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 Okay? Nobody says it that way anymore. That's archaic. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R. in New York. And, uh... <laughs> oh, yes, but that, that girl there who did that thing with the coat there, I I, uh, I think that's kind of nice. I, I don't have anything against that. Uh, actually, I'll tell you, we did have one time, though, a thing uh, similar to that happened on a drill field that, that wasn't quite that way. It was in the foothills of the Ozarks, and uh, we're marching around out there in the second area there, the big area there, nothing but weeds and... Uh, puddles and mud and crud like that, and we're marching around out there, and there were a lot of farmers standing around out there, see. Yeah, they'd come around, stand around, and try to sell stuff to the GIs, and there we were marching around out there, about 20 of us in this platoon, marching back and forth, and all of a sudden, uh, we get this five-minute break, see, and there's this chick shows up. Well, it uh, was a very interesting time. I, I, uh, I mean, you know, you learn a lot on maneuvers out there, especially, you know, certain kinds of maneuvers, and, uh, I just say that uh, there's more to the Army life than you would ever guess, friends. I mean, a lot of you think it's dull. No, 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 I don't think so. I, I, I've never, I could never say that the Army was dull. Uh, I could say that it was maddening, it was irritating, it was a drag. But I couldn't say it was dull. Not at all. I, uh, I remember, uh, of course, I could tell you stories about the Army. That the, Oh, incidentally, speaking of, uh, i got to bring this out now. I just want all of you to listen uh I have a, one of these papers. See, I get all these underground papers. And uh, there's nothing that an underground editor of an underground paper likes better than big, loud publicity. Uh, <laughs> you know, but nevertheless, uh, an underground paper they sent me this. It's the Obscurer from uh, Rutgers, uh, Newark, the Newark campus in Rutgers. And uh, I just want to read to you an item in this current issue. It says, Gene Shepard, and there's a quote around Gene Shepard. It says, Gene Shepard bombs at Newark. Last Saturday night, a capacity crowd of 1,000 students jammed the Rutgers Newark Campus Center to savor the genial wit of that ever-popular philosopher, comedian, and storyteller extraordinaire, Gene Shepard. Two hours before his scheduled arrival, there was not a seat to be had in the main lounge, and standing room was already disappearing rapidly as the reception committee raced to finish the last-minute preparations. A few minutes after 9 o'clock, the entertainer entered the center underneath a huge banner proclaiming Flick Lives while the crowd roared its approval. 
stopping only to shake hands with a few of his followers, quote, Mr. Shepard, end of quote, proceeded directly to the platform to begin his show. After laying a few campus wisecracks on the audience, quote, Gene, quote, produced his famous kazoo and launched into a rendition of The Sheik of Araby. Before he even reached the second stands, however, the crowd said something was wrong. Murmurs of his phrasing was all wrong to begin with, and the old drive was missing. Murmurs of discontent were heard among the vast audience until someone in the last row shouted out, You're an imposter! That's a difficult Jersey way of saying it. Do you hear that? You're an imposter! What's not so, Mr. Shepard, quote, countered, almost screaming to be heard above the growls of suspicion now emanating from the agitated crowd. If you're really Gene Shepard, shot back his New Jersey accuser, Ben, tell me, where and when do you remember seeing the wreckage of a downed German aircraft in the public square of a village? Beads of perspiration rose on Mr. Shepard's forehead as he stared blankly at the sullen audience. He finally stammered out, Well, uh, it, uh, um, well, it must have been, uh, <laughs> in France in the last World War, right? Right? Wrong! screamed the student pointing his finger at the phony shepherd. It was during the Chicago World's Fair where they had reconstructed a Belgian village complete with a wrecked German biplane. You phony! Now, thoroughly convinced of the fraud perpetrated on them, the angry Rutgers students charged the platform. The phony shepherd never had a chance. A dozen strong arms prevented him from making any attempt to escape. This imposter, who had also duped college audiences at Seton Hall, fairly ridiculous and sweet briar, suffered great retribution for his heinous offense. For a period of 72 hours, he was locked in the soundproof room of WNRU, the campus radio station, while a dozen loudspeakers blared out the complete, unedited collection of Mark Rudd's magnificent speeches delivered at Columbia last spring. After this frightful ordeal, which, quote, liberated his mind from his body, the prisoner was sentenced to life imprisonment in the snack bar kitchen. Let the preceding story stand as a warning to all Gene Shepard imposters who think they can pull a fast one on New Jersey's college students. Remember, and we say it again, Flick lives. What are you watching? Bring it in. There it goes. <laughs> That's it. I, my engineer even listens. All right, take it down there. There we go. I just say that sickening. That is sickening. You mean to tell me this phony was at Sweetbar? You know, I've heard rumors that this this clown even went up to Princeton. Getting out of hand completely. No, did you hear about the phony Aretha Franklin that played all throughout Florida here a couple of months back? Making 7500 bucks a shot? You didn't hear about that, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I'll tell you this. Uh, uh, I might as well tell you the truth about this thing. There is no Gene Shepard. Uh, Gene Shepard is a composite name. It's an entertainment concept, and there's actually a stable of Gene Shepherds. I am the fourth one. I, I work Mondays and Wednesdays, and uh, the other Shepherds work Tuesday. There's one that works on a, I never met the guy that works on Thursdays. Tall, skinny guy. And uh, there are six Gene Shepherds that have been beating out there in the bushes and playing colleges. Now, you see what I'm telling you? I just, I just tell you the truth. Do you buy it? No. Okay. That's all I can say. I mean, the truth hurts. It's a bad scene. And the truth... Oh, Boy, got another dart there. Unkind arrows and slings. Well, all right. I can only say to you, though, that uh, this this phony... You see, what bugs us here is that this guy is an unauthorized shepherd. Uh, He's not part of our stable. And he's out there freelancing, you know. Well, you know, there are 12 Cousin Brucies. 
Not one single person could be that stupid. There's 12 of them to work on that, man. That's just not easy, you know. Oh, yeah. Now, of course, uh, these, uh, this is showbiz. It's all, you know, it's all. Yeah. Have you ever noticed? Have you noticed? I just want, want you to notice something. Have you noticed that on, on Wednesday nights, Johnny Carson is fatter than he is on Tuesdays? Just look careful. And if you got a color set, you can tell the difference right away. And uh, you, you can always tell. Uh, I can tell you this, that, uh, that there is no genuine, there hasn't been since 1953, a real Merv Griffin. Don't you remember Merv Griffin used to play the organ? Yeah, well, that was, that's the real, the original Merv Griffin played the organ, played things like Tennessee Waltz and stuff like that. Fantastic uh, name in showbiz, very creative. But uh, the uh, Merv Griffin is a composite name, you know, like IBM or SCM or ABM or, or Ding Dong Doodoo or all those great names you see on the board there. I wonder if somebody's ever decided just to think up a great name and put it on the big board. Does nothing at all. This company just keeps popping up and down. See, LDQ and I Electronics, something like that, or or Diatonics. <laughs> Got to come up with. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of uh, Diatonics, uh, you notice all these uh, little cockamamie uh, pseudo religions, pseudo scientific religions are beginning to pop up again. Have you noticed that? Uh, we're entering a new dark age. You know, everybody's buying stuff like uh, astronomy and palm reading and. And the tea leave reading and the numerology, all these deep thinking type stuff, you know, that the gypsies have been handing out for years. And <laughs> that's making it big in Cosmopolitan and other, you know, other more uh, dynamic magazines of our time. However, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm predicting something. I mean, there, there has to be a new big wave of Rosicrucians. Is there anybody out there who, uh, who is a Rosicrucian out there? As a matter of fact, you know, at the age of nine, I sent away for that thing. You know, it says, learn the secret mystery of the ages. Be one of the great mystic brotherhood who has learned the secret of dynamic true life. And it shows this guy wearing a shroud, and his eyes got two, like, uh, like uh, beams searching out of the eyes. And it said, Rosicrucian, amorc. Do you know what that amorc means? A-M-O-R-C. How is it I'm the only one that's been ever in every magazine since Captain Billy's Whizbang? What are you talking about? It's in today. It's in the magazine right now. It says, what does amorc mean? I don't know. I wrote away for it. And uh, they wrote back to me. And I, got, I was being shadowed by these guys who had these uh, brown shrouds on all the time after that. Because, I, you know, these people who, uh, who are on to the mysteries of the ages, they don't let go easy. In fact, I joined a society once that believed there was a lot of people who are in the shape of doorknobs who live under the uh, the uh, Arctic ice cap. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, Richard E. Byrd discovered it. Of course, they had to shut him up. You know, he's dead, you know. Uh, that's not the... Admiral Perry, he's dead, too. I mean, all those guys that went up there are dead. Why? Well, you aren't going to let that out. That, uh, you know, after all, there's a... You know why those people live up there under the ice pack? They live in the middle of the earth. You see, Do you, maybe you don't know the earth is round and it's it's uh, it's hollow. It's it's hollow like a like a beach ball. Well, many many centuries ago, when these people discovered that man was really a rotten fink, the good people decided to go and live in the center of the earth, and that's where the good people live now. Yeah, that's right. What do you think earthquakes are? <laughs> you never thought about it, did you? you know, do you think earthquakes come just because California's loose? The screws holding it down or worn or something like that, huh? Boy, people are really dumb, I'll tell you. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I joined this society. And uh, I used to get their literature for a long time. The old man used to sit there and say, how's things in the middle of the earth? I'd say, none of your business. So I was a teenage, not only a teenage expert, I was made a bishop in that church. 
Yeah, it was on the second lesson came there, and they sent this to me. If I'd stuck around long enough, I'd have made Cardinal. Cost two bucks, though, so I didn't have that. But nevertheless, it was uh, it was really great, and I was ordained. Yeah, that I can uh, give you unction. Yeah. So it's a thing here. It's a, well, Of course, I don't practice this any longer. Later on, I became a druid, but uh, that's another story. It's a sickening story. I don't want to tell you. Of course, I'm still that. I mean, uh, more or less, non-practicing, although once in a while on a summer day, you get the urge to go out. We used to have our masses we'd read in the park. And uh, we, there was an oak tree. We'd read our masses. had a birch bark scroll we'd read it from. It's a very touching ceremony. I know if, I'm not going to laugh at your hang-up if you don't laugh at mine, okay? I'm not going to laugh at yours. Oh, boy. Although it's silly. I mean, when you think of it, what you believe in. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you know, tea leaves. Don't give me that. Right, <laughs> George. However, I do uh, expect to see the uh, Rosicrucians come back. Is there anybody out there? Was the Rosicrucian got a secret pin there? I'll bet I'm going to get the boy. I'm going to burn in hell, right, friends? Yes, sir. Well, that's all right. I'm not going to be the only one. There's going to be a lot of us down there. Uh, that's that's a thing that my old... I had this Grandpa Charlie used to say. He was my grandpa. He really was. His name was Charlie. And uh, he used to say, well... This was his, his one witticism. He says, well... So if I go to hell, I expect to go to hell. I'm going to have a lot of friends there. Everybody'd laugh. And uh, knowing full well he wasn't kidding. Because if anybody's going to hell, he was. And as far as I know, that's where he is now. He's shoveling away down there, yelling and hollering, chewing tobacco. However, uh, <laughs> however, I, I've noticed that uh, I don't hear... By the way, speaking of uh, of this uh, imposter that was over at Rutgers, you know, the other night, I, I should report this. Uh, strange moments in, in, the life of a, in the life of a writer type. I'm an amateur radio operator, see? And I got a ham station. And so the other night I'm on the air scene. I don't talk much about anything about my outside world when I'm on the ham band. You know, I just say the usual stuff like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you're pretty getting the fade, Fred. You know, that kind of stuff. So I'm on the air, and it, uh, all of a sudden the guy comes back to me. And now I'm on this band that's 15 meters. Usually you don't talk to anybody closer than Murmansk. So, uh, yeah, that's what I like, see. So I'm on the air there, and. I finished talking to some guy in Sweden or someplace, and all of a sudden this this uh, squeaky voice comes on. He says, hey, hello, uh, Brink, Brink. And I said, oh, come on, Brink. I said, all right. I said, what do you want? And he says, I'm in North Bergen. He says, North Bergen. I said, you know, figure, I, you know, I work in Norway or Spitsbergen or someplace like that. And I says, North Bergen. Said, yeah, I'm North Bergen High School. Hey, Shep. Oh, come on. Well, within five minutes, there's 17,000 kids all on the frequency there. See, they drift down on the frequency. And his kid asked me a question. Now, listen to this. This is what uh, what started the whole thing off. Kid comes out. He says, hey, Shep, I, I heard you on the air there. And uh, I wanted to ask you about your book, uh, In God We Trust, All of Us Pay Cash. I said, yes. Well, uh, we're reading it in class. I says, you are? Well, no, that's true. I love it. I'm not, not inventing it, Charles. So be calm. You've never read it. I can tell you're the type that doesn't read. So you, you know, he still thinks Melville wrote about a whale. So uh, nevertheless, I said, uh, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I got it in class. Yeah, it's it's required reading here in this class. I'm in the North Bergen. And I says, well, what can I do for you? He says, well, in the second story there, I want to ask you what you meant by. And the next thing I know, there's about 500 kids all gathered around asking me on the air stories about. Out of the book, you see. They're all landing on the frequency there, see. And at the, it was like a, a literary round table. It's a very strange feeling. 
And, and it suddenly hit me, this could only happen in the 20th century, where an author who has written a book... Now, to most people, a writer is an abstract thing. The only thing they know, you know, here it is, they've got this book, and the writer is an abstraction. And furthermore, if you ever do see the writer, he's usually uh, on some uh, television show being interviewed or something like that, but that's about as far as it goes. He's not like, you know, showbiz, where, where in, in a sense, showbiz, the... The star type is uh, always reappearing and is uh, very familiar to people. The writer is a kind of shadowy abstraction, just like uh, J.D. Salinger. You know, he's just sort of uh, a name. Uh, he's there. Uh, you take somebody like uh, John O'Hara or uh, somebody like Cheever. They're just there, you see. But it suddenly hit me. Here I am in the middle of a, a like a, an interview with about 15 kids on the air on the ham radio, and uh, I'm, I'm talking to these kids about the book. And it could never have happened uh, in any other time in history. But uh, can you imagine uh, somebody sitting there, and he's got his ham radio on, and all of a sudden he says, Hey, Fred! Fred! Hey, listen, get on 20 meters! Uh, Fred, get on 20 meters quick, uh, Fred! Uh, Joseph Conrad is on the frequency! At the, yeah, Joe Conrad is on the frequency. You want to ask him about Lord Jim? Get on there. <laughs> All right, it's the same thing. And this this kid, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, talk about multimedia. It's, it's, this is this is more multimedia than than uh, than uh, McLuhan could ever conceive of. I doubt whether he even knows about ham radio. And yet, ham radio is a great medium of human communication, and. Uh, here I am sitting there at 2 o'clock in the morning with about nine kids from Jersey, all of whom go to this high school over there, and they're asking me, but they're asking me questions pertaining to themes they were writing on the book that was, you know, they were going to hand in the next day. And so uh, we sat there and talked a while, and suddenly it hit me, this is kind of ridiculous. And I said to the kid, what up, Susan? Well, uh, hey, uh, now listen, uh, how come uh, when you when you said that in chapter 28, would you, you get the book out? Won't you, Shepard, get the book out? Then look in chapter 28, and uh, he starts asking me to consult a copy of my book. And uh, he wanted me to, in a sense, write the theme for him. And I said, well, look, kid, uh, you write the theme. And uh, then there was a dead silence on the band. And uh, it was as if... Uh, you know, as if, as if suddenly Conrad had thrown on the brakes and said, "Look, you do you, <laughs> you think your own ideas," and I, I was, uh, I was struck by that because, uh, of course, amateur radio is a strange thing. One night, let me tell you another story. One night, I was on the air, the same kind of story. One night, I was on the air late at night, and uh, I'm uh, talking to a guy in one of the lesser islands in the Hawaiian Island group, and he said to me, uh, "Came on," he said. Uh, Coming through very clean and a good signal. It was about uh, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and he said, "Say, he said, um, you know, uh, do you ever read Playboy?" And I came back to him. I said, "Yeah, I read Playboy." He says, "Well, you know, there's something. You said something a couple of minutes ago that reminded me of a guy who writes these stories in Playboy, just the way you said it. And uh, I wonder if you uh, if you ever read Playboy. I'll bet you'd really dig this guy's stuff." I said, uh, oh, yes, uh, who, who is this guy? Well, I don't know. I don't know the names of the guys that write nothing. 
You know, this is one of the great curses of, of writers that hardly anybody, they'll sit there and read you and they hardly ever know who wrote it, you know. It's just, unless you get on the Arlene Francis show, which is why you do that, see. So, uh, nevertheless, we sat for a half an hour and I pretended that I didn't know who this guy was. And then I said, well, well, uh, I got a copy of Playboy. What story are you talking about? And so he says, well, uh, the, the one there about, uh, on page, uh, 129 there. The one about the uh, blankety blank buzzard, the secret mission there. And uh, I took a look at it, and I said, yes, uh, gee, that's an interesting story. I don't like that kind of stuff, though. It's about armies. I don't like that stuff. He said, well, no, it's not really about an army. Why don't you go ahead and read it? It's great. And so he's arguing with me, see, about I should read it, my own story. And, <laughs> and so this, this kind of stuff uh, is only possible in our time. Uh, it's, it's a, I remember reading something about Hemingway one time uh, where... where uh, Hemingway met a guy in a tank someplace, and the guy, the guy says uh, to him that uh, somehow the subject came up of a story that this guy, the lieutenant who was driving this tank, had read, and he didn't know who Hemingway was at all. And he said, uh, boy, he says, what a corny scene this is. He says, this is the kind of junk that that guy Hemingway would write. And uh, here's Hemingway sitting in the tank with him. He says, well, yeah, well, what do you mean? What kind of junk did Hemingway write? Uh, what, what kind of junk is that? He says, well, you know, a cornball scene like this, all these guys walking around and pretending like they're bullfighters and all that kind of stuff. He says, you know what I mean. You know that romantic jazz. Hemingway got so mad he hit him. And so they had a big fight in the, <laughs> in the tank. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, this, uh, this, uh, when you write, uh, when you write, you never know how people are, are going to react, especially if you write anything that has uh, overtones of humor to it, because most people have no sense of humor whatsoever. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I must say that I, I feel that strongly. I think a lot of people have a sense of comedy, but their sense of humor is totally, uh, it's not there. And so uh, humor can can get uh, raise the bile, the ire of people. It really infuriates them because somehow they they think they're reading a secret manuscript, and uh, they <laughs> I mean it, that really bugs them. I suppose it's a you know it's a it's a you know it's that Rosicrucian thing again all over again. It's a, it's part of being a secret society. What what are they laughing at? Type of thing. And uh, it, it it gets people. Uh, it, you can really uh, you can really separate people uh, by humor by what they laugh at and what they don't laugh at. And, uh, oh, yeah, there are actually people who believe Shirley MacLaine is funny. And uh, I I, uh, I think this is mysterious. This is part of the mysterious West. I mean, have you noticed that Shirley MacLaine is always playing Oriental girls? This is a part of our mysterious West. I mean, she's about as Oriental as my Aunt Min. But uh, nevertheless, she's part of that. Uh, that oh, yes, I, I, I've actually run into people who look me right in the eye and say, uh, Jerry Lewis funny. And, uh, well, that's... Uh, you know, it's one of the great mysteries. Uh, this is why there are Rosicrucians and tea leaf readers and all that stuff. Yes, I mean, they're, they're, we're, we're, we're surrounded by a great welling sea of mysteries, and you just can't put it off that big, you know, that quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, there are people who... I, I, I met a guy just last week. I mean, really, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I met a guy last week who swore up and down that Jackie Carter was funny. Well, I thought at first he was putting this on, you know, all the guys in the pool room were sitting around and we thought so and but then then again we realized that he was he started to cry and then we realized he wasn't that the he, jackie carter was funny so that ended that you know i hate to see a grown man cry especially in the washroom there with all that stuff written on the wall but the, in the pool room you know but he did and so we we kind of cool that we didn't say much after that but the, uh, <laughs> you know the, speaking of books i'll tell you this uh in answer to a lot of questions i keep getting letters from guys who 
are writing about. T.S. Mack is the name of this new one I'm working on. It's a, it's a book about a little-known Welsh poet. Uh, it's a saga. And uh, T.S. Mack is his name. It's about the army. And uh, he... Uh, uh, this letter kept coming in. Thousands of them come in and ask, when is it coming out? Well, it's going to come out next year. And uh, you be ready. Now, you know, oh, yes, yes, you can start saving up now. And uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right. you got to pay for it. Listen, I'm paying blood for it. You can pay a couple of, a couple of beans for it. I mean, after all. But uh, nevertheless, uh, writing is a strange and uh, peculiar and inexplicable uh, activity. Uh, it's hard to know why you do it. And uh, it is. It's not easy to answer those questions. I've never had a writer successfully answer it. The non-writer always thinks it's because of money or some idiotic thing like that, because that's what he does his stuff for. And, yeah, yeah. He works at the Bolt and Nut Factory for money. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any particular hang-up on bolts and nuts, but he has a hang-up on money. By the way, uh, this uh, friend of mine, Cable Spence, said he was coming in on the train the other day on the pen, coming in from, uh, yeah, this, uh, this pen, Pennsylvania train comes in from... Uh, uh, well, it comes in from Trenton, Trenton, as they say it on the train. That guy walks up and I says, Trenton, Trenton. And, uh, yeah, I saw that guy, the guy with a black hat. And he says there was a guy sitting in the train there, and he had this little platform on his knees. And uh, he had some beads on this little wooden, he had like a little wooden uh, slab on, on his knees, something like a checkerboard or something. And he had money, he had piles of dollar bills. And he had some change and coins and stuff like that. And he had a bead and he had a little, a little, uh, like a little votary candle or something there. And he was having a religious, uh, ceremony on the train. He was bowing and he was uh, saying things over and over again. And he would pick up the dollar bill and he would rub it and he would say things to it. And he was worshiping money right on the train there, worshiping mana. That's true. And the, uh, the conductor said that he did that every morning. Says, well, he was on his way in. Well, you know. He's a true Ayn Rand reader. I mean, there's a guy that really believes. But uh, a guy's got to believe in something, actually, you know. And, <laughs> and he said that, and he said it was kind of touching, you know. And he said he sang this little hymn, and uh, you know, and and, uh, and every once in a while he had this little bell that sounded just like a cash register. And in the middle of his little his uh, little litany there, he'd reach over and go ding ding, you know. And he'd hit it like that. You know, bells are very important in certain religious rites. And uh, he said that it was kind of touching. It could very well sweep the country. I mean, uh, because it's tangible, you see. You can reach out and you can hold that dollar bill and you look at it. And uh, it's kind of exciting, uh, I suppose. Oh, that's, that's uh, really, uh, I, I can't, uh, can't put it down. Uh, we, like we had this Holy Roller Church a couple of blocks away from our house. Uh, you know what is a Holy Roller Church? Well, sure you do. I don't tell you that. They play craps down there. And they roll them bones. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the the uh, Holy Roller Church used to, about, they'd hit their peak about the old quarter to 12, something like that. They'd start screaming and hollering and yelling. And uh, all of us kids, me and Flick and Schwartz and Bruner and, and Jack Morton and a couple of guys, we'd go down there and look in the windows, see, the Holy Roller Church. And they would be rolling around on the floor screaming, you know, oh, yeah, Lord, I hear you. You know, they'd yell and holler, and they'd foam at the mouth and kick the fern plants over. So one night, uh, I must confess, one night we got in on it. I mean, that was that looked like a real wild scene, you know. The kids dig that kind of... I like wrestling anyway, so the all, all six of us, me and Schwartz and Flick and Brunner and Jack Morton and Paulus, we went in there one night, and we started out with the rest, and we sat there in the congregation. And the minister up there, he said, I'm glad to see that young people are coming into the church. And um, we nodded. Somebody hollered, Amen, brother, in the back there. 
He said, yes, I'm glad to see that. And then somebody started to play the piano, and they started to sing. And all of a sudden, they are down on the floor there yelling and whooping and hollering. And the minister was throwing Mary Jane candy pies. They little Mary Janes. He's throwing them out there to the crowd, and they're snuffling them up and yelling. I don't know what that religion was about, but it was great. And uh, we got on the floor and yelled and hollered. And, uh, I'll tell you this, I got my pants all, all dirty. I tore one knee there, the left one, and my mother got bugged. So you got to sacrifice when you join a religion of that type. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I had one brief night as a holy roller. So, uh, I've been, I've been there. Don't, don't, don't laugh at me when people write to me and say your show lacks moral fiber. It uh, lacks moral fiber and it lacks philosophical bases. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know what does, does, does Norman Mailer have more moral fiber? Or has he just got a better press agent louder, you know? Who knows, you know? Uh, he writes good. But uh, that doesn't mean you think good. Oh, no, no. And so uh, I, I just uh, I, I just say to you that uh, I wrote for the Rosicrucian catalog. And they never came. It said that we were going to contact you, the brothers. They never did. I just got a lot of mail. Uh, I waited for him for a while. I was about 10. The old man used to laugh, you know. I also sent to the school in Kansas City. And uh, they said to earn big money, uh, be a secret detective. It, uh, yeah, it showed a guy with a cape, and it says, uh, Operative X is earning big money. And it said, uh, the Big Money School of Secret Detective Work in Kansas City, uh, Box A. And so I send off the Box A, and I'll tell you, I, I, uh, they're still after me. Do you know that J.E. Smith of the National Radio Institute, J.E. Smith of NRI, he's been after me for years. Ever since I was nine, I wrote in, and uh, I submitted uh, a little card. I wrote right in. It says, yes, I, too, would like to earn up to $4 a month in my spare time repairing super hats, like J.L. Wapley of Oxford, Mississippi, who is shown in the picture below. Uh, the J.L. Wapley, you can see him. He's kind of smudging. He's got horn room glasses. It says, I earned up to $7 last year repairing super hats in my spare time. Thank you, NRI. Well, I wrote off, and, uh, you know, there's... Uh, I, I'm still pursued. I hear from them once in a while. I like to get those letters. And the, so life is indeed, friends of Gallimaufry. It's, uh, it's exciting, too. I mean, it's, you know, six of one, half dozen the other. And uh, I'm not going to answer any more questions about In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which is the novel that I wrote. I'm just not going to answer. That's up to you now. I'm going to be enigmatic. I'm going to say, if it means that to you, it means that to you. Well, you know, like T.S. Eliot and all those big guy, W.H. Auden, he says that too all the time, and uh, E.E. E. Cummings, and uh, William Faulkner, he says stuff like that, see, uh, I'm going to talk more like Hemingway, you read it or I'll hit you in the beak, you know, man, Toretto, oh, and uh, stuff like that, oh, me drink wine with Pilar, you then go fight revolution, you know, it's a real good real life dialogue, and uh, by the way, I'm not going to answer any letters that say, where can I get a copy of your novel? Now listen, all of you who want a copy of it, this is an assignment. Go to your drugstore and tell them you want it. It's on Phantom Edition. Tell them you want it and Brooke, don't buy that Edgar Guest book just to, you know, make them happy, you klutz.